Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Richard Hills is Auckland's youngest city councillor and the chair of the Environment and Climate Change Committee. That's the group that successfully convinced the city to commit to the Auckland Climate Action Plan. This bold plan commits the council to halving net emissions by 2030 and to net zero by 2050. Given that the city's emissions have grown 5% since 2009 and that we're still growing with 2 million people uh, expected by 2030, that's a big ask. So how is Auckland going to do this? Well, I'm joined now by the man himself. Welcome, Richard, to this climate business. Sure, Vincent. Thank you for having me. That's a pleasure. We would have been together in person, but, you know, if it if it's not COVID that's um, thwarting our attempts to get you in the studio, it's an accident on the bridge. Is that right? Yeah, so a truck crash has basically closed all the lanes, all the uh, the traffic is backed up. <laughs> the city and the shore, I happen to be on the shore as opposed to the city as I am usually at another meeting, and um, all the buses are stuck the other side, so it's. Uh, I think the city's pretty messed up for the next few hours. Oh, no good. Well, let's hope they're okay. Well, we're pleased to have you on the show, and first of all, I think congratulations are in order for getting this plan adopted by council unanimously no less i'm really curious to know how you did that um maybe you could just tell us a bit about the origins of this plan because uh, i i imagine that it's got its origins um well from from some quite some time ago when the the council did commit to some kind of climate action in about 2012 is that right yes so we had a low carbon action plan which I think had some great things uh, going in it. I wasn't on the council then, but it was it was just sort of like one of the plans that sat um, in the ether of council. Lots of plans sit there and bubble away and really passionate staff get things done um, and bring things to council, but it sort of didn't uh, really have the grounds to really reduce our emissions or really kind of take that whole Auckland approach. So, of course, um, two years ago now, um, well, last year was the climate emergency, uh, Penny Hulse. So last year, last term was my first term on the Auckland Council. Uh, mm. Penny Hulse was the chair of the Environment and Community Committee at the time. And she um, worked with us to call a climate emergency. Um, so many other councils uh, around the country were, were calling for one. We also yeah. did. Obviously, everyone then wanted to see immediate action, but... As we know, council unfortunately is not able to always jump straight into immediate action, but uh, Penny and I and others all sort of push for a real, a climate plan that was meaningful, um, I guess, and that we can, you know, measure ourselves, achieve things. Mm. Um, you know, so we put a draft out in July last year. Uh, mm -hmm. Alec, um, pr previous to that, John Morrow was the... Um, Sustainability uh, Chief Sustainability Officer. Now that's Alec Tang. Um, the team worked on a pretty, um, you know, wide plan covering the whole of uh, council, but also Auckland, and you know, incorporating all our emissions profile across the city um, and what we could do. And at that point, it was more of a framework. There wasn't uh, actions. It wasn't 
sort of a complete plan, but it was definitely on the way to right. go. We got a lot of positive feedback. Um, then we had an election. Uh, the mayor uh, campaigned pretty hard that we needed to act on climate, and so did many of uh, the rest of us. Then um, I we got I got re-elected, which was fantastic, and I said to the mayor, you know, I'd like I'd love to be a chair, but I also think that we need a real focus on climate. He was keen for that. At first, I think there was some discussion about maybe a smaller advisory with not all council members on it. But I said, if we're honest and if we're seriously wanting to tackle climate change, it needs to be all of council approach right. and all of us involved and, you know, one of the major committees. So thankfully, he gave me the role of um, the chair of the Environment and Climate Change Committee. So there's four um, major committees of the whole. So that's one of them. And, you know, from that first climate emergency in the last uh, couple of months of last year, we quickly instigated a climate impact statement for every new decision. So that had to be considered uh, while the climate plan was being um, underway. Like you say, unanimously, um, just before lockdown, actually, when we were putting through the, the draft out, uh, the final plan out for consultation, um, we also said we wanted to see having our emissions by 2030. Once again, I did not think I'd get support of the... Yeah, that's whole. right. It's very interesting. I mean, the plan itself is very detailed and yes. it's quite ambitious targets. So I'm curious to know what kind of opposition you had to it and how did you overcome that opposition? Well, I think when we had the, the feedback back and it was pretty strong, um, you know, more action is what was needed. There wasn't much opposition to uh, climate action, I guess. I, I think also... You know, just before um, the lockdown, you know, a few months before, you know, many of us marched in the street with 50,000 mostly younger people out right mm. outside the town hall um, mm. demanding climate action. Um, the, election, kind of momentum, the, the momentum kind of was with you. Is that what you're saying? Yes. A lot so, of councillors did speak against it, but then voted for it. So it's sort of that not wanting to be on the huh. wrong side of uh, history, I think. Um, you're a Labour candidate, right? You're a member of the Labour Party, and so it's pretty clear that you're coming from, broadly speaking, a kind of central-left central position. Did you find that the uh, citizens or CNR group were a against you, or are they the group that actually... I mean, it was unanimous, right? I'm, so I'm, I'm really interested yeah. to know, what, what did you do? You know, do, were you just... Are you a fan? <laughs> Um, orator, uh, or is it just the kind of the overwhelming evidence now is so strong that you 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 can't be against it? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of you can't be against it. Um, I think it's also the fact we had a broad range of uh, feedback from business, from community, from we had the highest ever turnout of young people in Maori um, and Pacifica uh, submitting on the plan and telling right. us that we need to be doing this far far outweighing the actual percentage of of the demographics in Auckland. Um, we had some pretty compelling uh, rangatahi come present to us about the future. Um, we also, I, I didn't run on, I run as an independent on the, the North Shore, but everyone knows I'm left. I am a Labour Party member, but I, I didn't try and put politics in it. It probably also helped that, you know, reluctantly it seemed at the time, the National Party uh, supported the Zero Carbon Act around the same time. So mm -hmm. I kept pushing that this is a, not a, this is not about politics. Um, I also met with some councillors who I thought may, be, may have certain oppositions to it, but were able to tie in those kind of, um, you know, if a councillor doesn't necessarily think we need to 
act on emissions right now, they are concerned about the coastline or they're concerned about flooding or they're concerned about adverse weather effects um, right. yeah. Yeah. or concerning about public transport. Every, everyone now wants public transport. It's not a, I mean, it's differing levels, but no one thinks that's sort of a left wing or mm-hmm. overly mm-hmm. progressive idea now. That's just how we connect a city. And, um, you know, so it wasn't, I guess people coming at it from different angles, but w- wasn't sort of seen as a, out there, left wing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have to explain climate change to anyone, which is which is really good. I think people are mm. past that. The majority, you know, not everyone, obviously, but sure. no, um, there's there are outliers. But it was interesting. I had um, uh, the National Party, uh, National Party, there, Nate's mm-hmm. spokesperson on climate change and uh, RMA reform, um, and you know, again, a, a, a real commitment to uh, addressing climate change. It was a, a kind of a question not of of how or why, but uh, sorry, of what or why, but now about how, you know, how how fast, what are, what levers are we going to pull and, and so on. So, you know, it's kind of gratifying to see that overall there's such a consensus in New Zealand about addressing the issue. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the first things I said to myself <laughs> and to my support staff um when I first became the chair was I don't want to talk about the fire floods and um, natural disasters because that one gets overplayed. But then we had the sky turn red on, you know, a couple of days into the new year, we had record breaking drought for Auckland, which we had to spend emergency infrastructure um, funding on. Then we had, you know, recently record floods up in um, the far North and Whangarei. Um, so it's, it ended up becoming hard to not discuss those things and to actually form them into the the case for if we do not do anything, we are we are going to see more and more of this, and that's the expense of not doing anything. So, and I'm going to have the same um, issue this coming for the ten year budget, which is coming up, um, and we're starting to discuss that now. You know, prioritising. I keep asking, you know, what is the cost of not doing these things? We can keep putting. Uh, you know, the cost on action, but I think the cost on inaction is larger, but it's really hard to quantify. So I think that's my challenge at the moment is we've got everyone supporting it, everyone's saying that we're going to do these things, but we also need to have clear funding and and, and prioritisation of our budgets to show that we meant it when we voted yeah, for this. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Hey, well, let's talk about the plan because, um, you know, I think it comes out in October. Is that right? You've got a... a, a a proper launch for it? Yeah, proper the online launch. We've got sort of the, the bare bones of it sitting on our committee papers somewhere. But yeah, uh, yeah October, we're hoping for the kind of big uh, launch where people can access and look through it and see what yeah, we're right. Yeah, well, that's all online now. It's quite dense, um, but it makes great reading. And I, I wanted to, um, let, let's just start at the top. I think let's talk about the difference between gross and net emissions because that's really important for us. Just explain what the difference is between a net target and a gross and a gross emission. Well, I guess, and for me, it's, I think, a little bit tricky because people like to say we can keep increasing our uh, gross emissions by, you know, suctioning it out with planting trees and things. So I guess... You know, zero net emissions is the aim by 2050, but, you know, it's about decreasing the overall emissions or at least slowing that as well. Because I think even at the best targets for the government and the council, it kind of assumes some, some kind of magical carbon sequester being invented during that time mm-hmm. as well. So I guess 
people... Because that 5%, by the way, you know, the, the growth of 5% from 2009 was actually, in a net sense, was only 1% because of tree planting, as I understand it. So there was a sort of a 4% offsetting gain. Uh, are we going to, is the, is the council and the city going to be reliant on forests and other kind of carbon credits to, to stay within that target? Uh, the the, the modelling shows that we, we will be um, relying, but, but I think what people don't really realise is that it's, it's megabucks. You know, we're going to have to spend millions and millions on, it's not just the mere million and a half trees, it's sort of um, a urban nahiri increase in canopy of, you know, ridiculous proportions to even reduce our emissions slightly. I can't remember, I'm sorry, exactly, I think a mature tree is, you know, something like one or two days of a car, um, a mm -hmm. combustion mm -hmm. engines. Uh, so there's no amount of yearly, that's going to get us. emissions, one tree or something. So yeah, it's yeah. Not, um, so we really have to reduce reductions um, as aggressively as, as we are going to spend on offsetting, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, you, you're kind of, it's the, I guess, the the whole pants analogy, you know, just another notch in the belt will be okay if we keep eating the same things. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, that is the, the big um, challenge for us as a committee and for Auckland Transport and others to come on board as well, um, is that it's serious change. You know, we're still only doing 10 kilometres a year in um, cycleway, we're not even actually meeting that target, disappointingly. Um, we need to be tripling that and we're barely touching the sides. Um, mm. And it is about that really good public transport and access and all the co-benefits that come with that, but also, you know, electric vehicles and, you know, reducing the embodied carbon of buildings. And it's kind yeah. of, people keep asking me for what is the best place to to prioritise, and you have to do it all, otherwise it just doesn't work. Yeah. That said, um, if you look at the the plan, sort of divided into two parts, it seems to me. There's mitigation and um, you know addressing um, the results of climate change, and then there's the reduction um, side of it. So let's just talk about the. We'll, we'll come back to mitigation and adaptation issues because I'm really interested in that. Um, Anyone that's driven down Tamaki Drive in the middle of winter would know just how vulnerable that road is. But we'll, we'll come back to that. Let's talk about these reductions. So the biggest contributor by far to Auckland's emissions is transport. What a surprise. And particularly road transport, 68% um, of the cuts that are needed have to come out of this sector, right? But uh, Richard, we do love our cars. You know that, don't you? And, and actually, you know, we love our cars because it's Blimmin' hard to get around Auckland without a car. If you, I don't know, if you live in Howick and you've got a job in Avondale, how are you going to do it? You know, that's a that's a fifteen hundred hour bus trip. Um, so I'm really interested. You know, what are the levers that we can pull to address? You know, it's actually a genuine problem. I'm I'm sure that people do want to um, get out of their cars, but how how are we going to do this? Yeah, well, that is the the magical question, I guess. Um, I'd really me, hope you've got the answers. You know, for me, the easiest, easiest way is reducing trips. So what we've done with COVID, we cannot, and I keep saying to everyone, we cannot revert back to normal. I mean, I 
at the moment I'm doing most of my meetings from home um, now, which is just an advent of COVID. We had that choice, but we mm. kept using the excuse of technology and that it was better to all meet together um, before. And now it's, you know, half the council at the moment, we have to be at home, you know, because of uh, physical distancing in the town hall and our committee rooms. But actually most of us are sort of choosing to do that now. You save an hour each side of the day. You know, I, bu I bus in every morning um, on a usual day. And so that's fine. I'm lucky to have a 10 minute frequency outside my house every day um, to get to work. But actually I prefer now, if I can, to stay um, at home. Of course, you have meetings all over the city and it's not always possible, but that is yeah, not an option for everyone. So reducing those trips is a number one. Sorry? You make me feel guilty for dragging you out to try and get you into the studio. We're, we're oh, no, no. <laughs> talking to you through um, through software. So, okay, reducing the actual overall volume by fewer trips, that's a good idea. Uh, what else? What about the cars we drive in? EVs have got to be part of this plan, but EVs yeah. only make a tiny fraction of the total fleet. Yeah, so we need a dramatic rise, and unfortunately that cannot be... Uh, we've obviously supported things like the fee-bait scheme, which is kind of up in the air right now. Um, it needs to be government intervention there. We council, um, we can advocate in that space for EVs. Yeah. We are switching out as a part of the emergency budget. We secured um, funding to switch out our own fleet at a much quicker rate. Um, that's the council fleet. And also a quite a severe reduction in overall uh, vehicles. We've, we've already put a focus on you know, how many of these cars that we own now are just sitting dormant for five hours of the day and we just need to be using them better. So we've got a much better car. Um, you know, if you don't pick up the keys, the key gets locked again and someone else can take them, that kind of mm. thing. And we're, you know, we're working with other businesses, the Climate Coalition of uh, businesses, they're all looking at the same sort of thing. So if you get that replicated across the city, um, you know, those fleets also after, you know, two, you know, three or four years get then out into the community. So you get big business buying up or leasing a whole lot of, and we know that people flip um, business fleets pretty quickly. So then that will hopefully help the community then start having access to more affordable EVs because at the moment they're not the, you know, the cheaper option for most people. Um, but I guess that's where the government can intervene too. Can they ramp up their, their change to, EVs for the government fleets, and that's right across all types. You know, I know they have yeah. issues with maybe the police cars and things, but but also around how they can. Is it scrappage rates? I know some uh, other cities around the world they, the governments are paying people to scrap old cars so they can buy EVs and, and things like that. So, you know, whether there's an appetite uh, to do that, that will be, you know, a quick way. We're doing it obviously in council as well. We're trying to flip out as much of our you know, the rubbish trucks and things like that moving to EV, trialling. Um, we want Auckland Transport to move much faster on the EV pathway for buses. Mm -hmm. I think by the end of the year we'll only have about 18 yes. um, el electric buses, but they are almost double the price of, of a, the buses we're, we're getting in. So, But what I keep pushing is that it's about 60% reduction in operating costs over time. So... We just need the capital, and if that's from the um, Waka, Waka Kotahi, the NZTA, the government, if they could subsidise the capital for the bus companies, maybe it works out longer term. Um, so there's several places, but, you know, council, 
where it's just putting pressure on the government really for the for the real big moves on electric vehicles. Yeah. So I'm looking at the plan. It's got a line here in transport. A substantial mode shift to public transport and walking and cycling reduces emissions in the transport sector by 14%. A switch to electric and zero emissions vehicles, um, passenger and commercial freights, drives down emissions reductions, da 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 So we, we know all that. Are you saying that the plan has still yet to turn into actions? It's still kind of at the aspirational end. It's saying this is kind of where we need to go but the how of how we do that, is that still being worked out? Yeah, so the te- we always said that, um, so the budget after the, so we passed the plan in July slightly um, around the same time as the emergency budget. We, the emergency budget, thankfully we kept um, that funding in there, was more about getting our own house in order. So things like um, we're paying to switch out our gas boilers and our uh Pools and leisure centres for electric, that's about 20% of our overall emissions for council. Um, mm-hmm. Switching out all our, as quickly as possible, our car fleet to electric. Um, there's the urban Nahiri space that'll be, you know, ramping up to me as a million and a half trees, but also the wider, um, you know, the nurseries and bolstering the future trees we need. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of stuff. And a whole lot of educational foundational programs around you know, and I guess this is where I get the pressure is, oh, I know you should be doing that anyway, but we have to get the kind of flip the whole council and the whole system on its head um, to change everything. So um, at the moment we're discussing with community facilities, how can we ensure that it's not just, you know, signature buildings that we're producing the carbon and the energy, it's every building and every upgrade. and And that's where I think we can balance the cost better. So through the just had a briefing this morning actually on the 10-year budget and we're looking at is it a targeted rate for climate or is it trying to completely reprioritize our budgets you know i obviously have a different view of many other councillors and probably phil twyford and the government over things like drury and the sprawling suburbs we're kind of still pushing um or the what the government's funding through the shovel ready projects that we'll end up having to fund connector roads to and they're going to a take a lot of our money and b create a lot of driving um and that's undeniable and i don't know how we change that mode of thinking yeah Um, yeah so real conflicting priorities there aren't there uh one of the things that i know that you've spoken about is reducing the fee possibly down to zero for public transport at auckland is that that was something you were pushing last year are you is that still a realistic objective uh, in this economic climate, uh, everyone would say no, but I think we, we've asked for a review and that obviously again got delayed with COVID and um, Phil Twyford has promised us after the election, uh, the full review of the Fairbox recovery and PTOM, mm. the public transport operating mm-hmm. model. At the moment, we are stuck with every time we want to improve the public transport system, we need to increase fares because we legally have to um, get 50% of the overall operating cost of public transport from the user that was set up in 2011. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I think 2011-12 that was set up was sort of a Stephen Joyce <laughs> issue um, around how we fund public transport. And then the other 50%, 25% is funded by government, 25% is funded by council. 
Um, thankfully, NZTA, um, Julie and Genta, Phil Twyford have got us to a position where they're kind of letting us break the law. Technically, we're down to, well, pre-COVID, we were about 43%. So we're only collecting about 43% of the overall cost from fares. But it was still meant we're having to increase fares every year. We got a few little things over the line. So kids-free weekends, something I pushed as a starter. It was only about half a million dollars um, over the whole year to give six to uh, mm -hmm. 15 mm -hmm. years and under uh, free access. And I thought that was two things. That was about getting young people and uh, children uh, used to the public transport system, being able to enjoy it right across the city. Also an equity thing, making sure that, you know, kids from all communities could use public transport and access it. And also a lot of parents said to me, there's no point in us catching a bus on the weekend if it's cheaper for me to drive and park exactly. in downtown or whatever yeah. when we've yeah, got yeah. three kids. Yeah. Um, but that's a starter. That's kind of the, the direction we're moving. And we just did this another one, which is another half a million dollars, um, uh, which is integrating the pub, the ferries with the buses and trains. So this means now for ferry users, you're trying to encourage people to bus to the ferry, and now the bus will be free, not free. It's incorporated into the ferry ticket. Okay. But before you'd pay $2, then the $5 on the ferry and $2 the other side. Now you just pay $5, which is reducing all those smaller trips, people driving around trying to find a car park near the ferry terminals. So this is little things we're trying to do with our budget. But if you were to do free um, public transport, this is a couple hundred million of council's budget that we just don't have. And then the argument is, do we make the current transport free by using all the money we'd be using to improve the public transport system for people who don't have it? Or do you try and fund as much new public transport that people don't have it and increase that? Yeah, it's this constant, like, you know, some councillors whose communities aren't as lucky as mine on the shore, we have the best bus system, although people still complain about it, but we have amazing bus system on the shore um, and some communities don't have any access to public yeah that's right so, yeah uh you've got a great bus system you've got a, a crappy cycleway it ends at the bridge well we don't even have cycleways that get anywhere there's no cycleways on the shore basically yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, we're getting there uh, that's something we've been working on over a decade now and it seems to be finally happening you, um, we'll, we'll leave transport in a second, but um, this idea of zero emission areas within the cities, that was kind of interesting. It's kind of like a smoke-free zone, but what, what is it? Yeah, so the I guess the one we'll be aiming for and which is the most, you know, well, 2012, the City Centre Master Plan said it would be happening much earlier than it is now. Queen Street, um, obviously, if we had light rail, it would be even better, but Queen Street, we know the air quality, um, I don't have the figures on the top of my head, but really, really poor air quality in the, the Queen Street kind of valley um, mm -hmm. where the majority of people who work, travel, live in the city, spend part of their day or all of their day walking through that, that zone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we can make that a zero emissions uh, space, so no vehicles, uh, we have seen a dramatic reduction over the last 10 years in vehicles anyway, and um, you know, single occupancy vehicles. But if we could have zero emissions areas, you're showing people what it is, um, you know, to be walking, cycling, moving around a space without having the, you know, terrible health impacts that come with poor air quality, but also, you know, being able to use that as a pilot or a model for other local boards and maybe to pick up on um, 
it's happening all over the world. It's sort of weird that we have to argue the same thing here all the time. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, we, we don't have much time left. I want to talk about adaptation um, and uh, sort of mitigating or at least living with the effects. So we're, you know, we're living in a warming planet. There's no doubt about it. That means more more rain at certain times of year, more intense rain, more surges, more floods, but also paradoxically droughts and, um, you know, sort of parts of the city, unfortunately, where our lakes are, um, that don't get any rain at all for long parts of the year. So what in the report has been identified as the main risks and what are you recommending that we do about them? Yeah, so so clearly um, right now the, one of the main risks is drought um, and the effect on our water supply. Um, which we have a water strategy underway, but we didn't necessarily uh, mean for it to be smack bang in the middle of uh, one in 200 year drought. Um, mm. And it shows how vulnerable we are, uh, that it's, we all have all our eggs in a few big dams, really. Um, yep. So the long-term strategy is, well, for me, the, what I'm pushing is a reduction in and use, um, you know, we can spend all this money on expensive um, infrastructure, but in the end of the day, we don't have water in that in those uh, reservoirs. We don't have water, so I think what we're wanting to do, uh, first of all, is to reduce individual um, use of water. Um, we got up to five hundred and eighty million liters a day during summer, which contributed. You know, when we had 78 days of basically no rain, we were also mm. using the highest amounts of water uh, we've ever used. Um, so that's one, is that as a city, we need to reduce our water intake. And also at the moment we've done, um, we've got a plan change underway to make resource consents uh, not needed for tanks of a certain size. Um, well, so, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, we just just... I don't know about your place, but it pours off my gutters, which are not cleaned, and onto the, you know, onto the driveway and down into the stormwater, and you know that I should be capturing that, shouldn't I? Yeah, I could so we've got, yeah. yeah, we've got <laughs> yeah. so we've got rules for new builds um, and things like that, and it's mostly around the stormwater impact. So having that uh, less impervious surfaces means that people should be collecting rainwater, so we don't overwhelm the stormwater networks, but. What we need to be doing is also making sure that people have access to that water uh, on an individual basis so they can use it and not be so reliant on um, the city water supply. So that's part of the strategy. Um, you know, in stormwater impacts and flooding and coastal, you know, we're going to be doing coastal um, compartmental plans with, you know, coastal communities. And there'll be some really tough discussions there as well around who who's responsible for when you're land your privately owned land is slipping into the into the sea um mm. and that'll be another thing we have to partner with government on and have a clear strategy for that because we can protect some but not all you, you you're speaking about tamaki drive before at the moment we're raising tamaki drive in places because of inundation we'll be doing the same with the esmond road off ramps uh, soon um some parks and some beaches won't be able to be saved you know people mm. Mm. What, we've got thousands and thousands of kilometres of coastline that we we cannot possibly build seawalls like a moat around our city. We'd go broke just doing, you know, a kilometre, let alone sure. thousands. Um, I'm thinking so there are those, those discussions. Um, obviously, our stormwater approach is 
really different now. So in my ward um, on the North Shore, the North Coat development, we're working with the government, Healthy Waters, um, Kainga Order, and we're also working with Panuku to do a big development there. But at the same time, we're changing the stormwater, the Awataha Greenway, which I've actually been working on for a long time, is now what's seen as an infrastructure project, but really it's going to be an amazing open, we're, re, we're bringing that river back to life. Same has happened recently in Mount Roskill. Um, where is it? Um, sorry, Richard, where is this greenway? Um, right in the middle of Northcote. So it's um, the Awataha Greenway. Um, but really it's the existing river that's piped. Um, but the whole area floods. It's a kind of low, low socioeconomic area at the moment, a lot of um, state housing. But we are going to bring that place back to life, open, reopen all that space, um, connect all the green spaces together. But it will be, you know, have all the kids and everyone who live in that community You've got an intensified development, so a whole lot more people, but you'll have access to the, the fresh water. We'll have planting there, but also it'll be much better for flooding because you'll have natural systems. You've got have the natural soakage instead of concrete everywhere and just piping. Um, so it's got this amazing benefit of having, you know, birds and insects and fish come back to that area, but also have the cooling of the area, more trees, more um, plants, but also have the ability to flood in a natural way away from the homes and businesses and schools. Um, so that's the kind of like the future of water infrastructure now is what we should have been doing. I mean, if you go to some parts of the North Shore, it's just these big cavernous um, uh, concrete streams, which are so unnatural, so bad for water quality. It just rushes everything, all mm. the contaminants to the beach so fast but also if it's overwhelmed it just floods all the properties so so that's a sort of a mitigation for um helping you know all the wetlands and everything are really great for reducing emissions or um sequestering that those em emissions but also for a adaptation point of view as we get um you know floods and storms more often it can cope the system can cope um yeah. so we're kind of yeah. moving back to the future really it's and uh, that's why it's the great relationships with um, Mana Whenua and Iwi, you know, showing us the way of how communities would have been built, you know, 200 years ago. We're kind of going back to that, um, which is fantastic. There's a kind of a delicious irony in this of um, that you, many of the changes which we feel are expensive and quite a threat to our current uh, I suppose our status quo, the, you know, the even just getting out of your car, uh, my experience of now cycling to town and cycling to work and cycling to the pub is, you know, at, at one level, yeah, I feel like I'm going backwards. I feel like I'm a, a boy again riding a bike, but <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. And I can have a few beers. I don't have to worry about um, driving. I've lost a lot of weight and there's an absolute joy in it. It's been such a discovery for me. I wonder how many other experience, people will experience this um a kind of a discovery of a different way of living as a result of having to address, you know, what's ultimately a climate change change issue. And, you know, that your stream example is probably a really good, good one. Yeah. And I guess that for me is like, you want people to be acting on climate change by accident um, because it's, because it's great. You know, like we, I think the recent electoral electorate um, uh, makeups done by Statistics New Zealand 
um, has Northcote, um, which is half of my ward, so the as the third in the country for public transport use, you know, and that is people who maybe 10, 15 years ago, you'd never think of catching a bus, but because yeah. it's easy, it's simple, you can sit there, do your emails on the bus and it's convenient, you don't mm. have to think about it and it's not too expensive. Um, people are choosing to do that, not because they're being forced to get out of their cars to save the climate, but because it's great for their mental health, it's great for their you know, you're walking to and from the bus, you're meeting people and um, yeah. all those connections that the co-benefits. And I think back to your question at the beginning of how you convince people um, to support the, the climate plan. It's just, do you want better air quality? Do you want better water quality? Do you want to connect with friends and family and have more time with them? Um, yeah. By the way, all these things mean that we're saving the world <laughs> at the same time. Um, kind of seems obvious. It's, you know, you don't, have to tell people, you know, never go overseas. Well, we can't actually at the moment, but, um, you know, never catch a plane again or never drive a car. But if you can do all these other things, you know, by routine and, and, and by choice, and it's also enjoyable, um, and it kind of makes sense to people. But I think we're not giving people options at the moment on how to live a climate-friendly life just by the way our city has been built for, you know, 100 years. How optimistic do you feel about this plan? Two thousand thirty is not very long away. You know, it's 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 less than a decade now. Um, on a scale of one to ten, of sort of wildly optimistic through to incredibly um, pessimistic. Where are you, Richard? <laughs> so actually, what what one of my support advisors said: don't be too pessimistic because it's actually really exciting. Uh, when I was coming to talk to you today, because often I do get into that. I'm really anxious. No one's going to do anything. This is really frustrating. But if I think to three years ago or five years ago, no one was talking about this into the, the levels they are. It definitely wasn't a bipartisan um, action. We didn't have the Paris Agreement. We, you know. We didn't have all these businesses on board. You know, some of the opposition is, oh, but, you know, we can't put this cost into business. Well, I'm sorry, actually, a lot of business are well ahead of where council is. Mm -hmm. um, and they see it as a positive and something to promote their businesses. So I guess some days I'm a eight because I think we are really on board and five because I'm worried that we stuck get stuck in this, we can't afford it, or we keep doing that. We keep getting forced into growth and jobs and housing, but forget that we're supposed to be focusing on having those things intensified and closer. You know, if we keep thinking of housing as spreading, I think that is that is our, even with the unitary plan, there's still far too much spread and we can't provide options for those people. We just can't. There's no money to support um, really good public transport systems spreading our city further and further. So yeah, maybe yeah. kind of like, I, I feel like excited as an eight because people are on board and there's lots of good work um, happening. And like the mayor and others are, are saying to me, this is going to be our climate 10 year budget. This is So I'm holding everyone to that. Yeah. But then I do get scared that we fall back into the easy, um, well, there's no money and it's too hard. Um, Great. Yeah. Well, don't do that. Stay on the eight. <laughs> Um, what yeah. happens next, Richard, when, when uh, I mean, the plan is available online, but um, what's this unveiling that you're doing in October and how can people get involved? Yeah, so it will depend. We haven't really discussed now because of COVID what it will look like. I assumed there would have been some awesome big launch, but now we have, um, you know, we're not supposed to hang out in big groups and we 
don't have the money for uh, fancy events, but you know there'll be a big online uh, launch, and we'll be pushing that out for people to get involved. We um, just set up last week a partnership direction for the council officers to get iwi on board you know they're already on board but how how we can have leadership and chicken challenge groups i know you've spoken to david um hall and others who are who are mm -hmm. doing the chicken challenge in a different way um and then it's that continuous you know hopefully whatever the government makeup is will be straight into those conversations with them and then next year we've got the 10-year budget which i am currently pushing to be a climate heavy you know, and I want Aucklanders to, I guess there's the money where the mouth is part, is that Aucklanders yeah. have to say, we want to pay for it, we want to reprioritise, we want to see a different Auckland. Because it's all right saying you want climate change until you're kind of faced with the fact that things have to change or you might have to pay. So I guess it's on all of us to, to show what that looks like and how much we're really wanting to push for it. But um, because people are so interested in this subject now, um, you know, we've got a broad range of people, and I know there's been many others working on it for decades. Um, but I think we've got the impetus for to tell people to get involved and to kind of keep pushing all members of the committee, all councillors and IMSB members, um, to really get action in a million different yeah, ways. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, we shall check in again, and uh, all the best with the launch. And um, Thank you for pushing this through. You know, we, it does take leadership and it does take a few um, slings and arrows. So thanks for doing that, Richard. And uh, we look forward to seeing the plan start to come to life. Yeah, kia ora. Thank you very much. It's awesome to talk to you. And thanks for all the work you're doing, um, promoting and getting people um, interested in and listening and talking about this uh, subject in a tangible kind of accessible way. So thank yeah, you. That is my pleasure. All, all three listeners uh, in total endorsement. Uh, <laughs> endorse it okay cheers have a have a great week richard uh thank you for joining us on this climate business and um do have a look at that report it's dense but uh some great reading in there and if you suffer from insomnia there's appendices as well uh namihi have a great weekend a uh, great week ahead everybody thanks for joining us on this climate business thanks for listening to this climate business i hope you enjoyed the program there are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hora.